Hello and welcome to Talking Intellectual History. I'm Dr. Paul Sagar and I teach political theory at King's College London. Today I'm speaking to Emily Jones, who is lecturer in modern history at the University of Manchester. She's also the author of Edmund Burke and the Invention of Modern Conservatism, 1830 to 1914, which won the Longburn History Today Book Prize. Emily and I will be discussing some aspects of her work on Burke and in particular Burke reception and hopefully broadening that out to a conversation about reception history in general. Emily, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. That's, that's right. So Edmund Burke is one of those figures who even people who've never done any history of political thought or maybe never really read any Burke would still likely perhaps know of because he is notoriously the founder of modern conservatism and indeed many contemporary conservatives uh, would still claim uh, that he is the the intellectual forebearer to the, the political ideology that they hold but your book of course challenges that narrative in a in a very strong way and it shows pretty much decisively i think that 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 story can't be true the common view as burke of the as the original conservative can't be true but maybe before we get to the history of uh, Burke reception. Is there anything to say about why Burke's life in and of itself um, should already be raising alarm bells as to, to this idea that he's a conservative? There's something already strange about that, even if we only know about Burke himself. Yeah, so I became interested in Burke when I was an undergraduate in my second year and I had bright pink hair and I was in no way expecting to be uh, enraptured by the founder of modern conservatism but I found some of the presentation not only of Burke but of conservatism and how we define the kind of key components of conservatism to be a bit well the latter definitely to be a bit woolly so I decided to do uh, my essay uh, that course on Burke and someone said to me oh but wasn't he a Tory? As if to say, why would you want to, why would you want to uh, <laughs> your essay on him? Um, to which I replied, well, no, he wasn't. Um, and so I think that that kind of gets to part of that question. Um, in that Burke was a Whig, he was Irish, he was viewed by contemporaries as someone who, you know, was suspicious from um, an Irish perspective, but also thanks to his relationships with Catholicism um, at a time when, you know, pre-Catholic emancipation, his mother was a Catholic, his father was a converted Anglican, his um, social circle um, included many Catholics. Um, and, you know, he was known as, you know, the, the, the author of the thoughts of the cause of the present, cause of the present discontents, which for a long time was viewed as the kind of Whig manual um, attacking royal prerogatives um, and you know, the king's friends uh, and you know, promoting a kind of Whig version of uh, party government. Um, he was you know, highly critical of um, the slave trade, of the, you know, the governor general of India, Warren Hastings, who he tried to impeach. Um, and you know, was, um, yeah, was also kind of nicknamed the dinner bell, was seen as kind of, you know, giving these, delivering these increasingly boring, lengthy speeches, um, was perceived as an adventurer who came from a non-aristocratic background. Uh, yeah, the list, the list of kind of, you know, 
compared to the, the kind of the designation of Burke as this kind of you know, great statesman, founder of uh, modern conservatism, you know, political philosopher, the Burke status, particularly after the death of Rockingham, his patron in 1783, you know, deteriorates, um, you know, to the point where, you know, a few years before his death, he's, you know, he's portrayed as a kind of madman by many of his um, opponents, including many Whigs in Parliament as well. So, so, so just before we, we explore why, why that was, just for those who don't know, why did people call him the dinner bell? Oh, because, um, because he gave, so, so, you know, we read Burke's speeches and we think, oh, how eloquent, you know, you know, um, what, what great prose style, which is how, you know, many people in the 19th century read Burke as well. But if you were sat in the House of Commons listening to Burke's speeches in his, you know, Irish brogue, um, which many people, you know, criticise as, quote, thinking of whiskey and potatoes, um, yeah, uh, you know, many people, you know, did not enjoy listening to his kind of three-hour speeches, um, hence dinner bell. So why hence dinner bell? <laughs> what, what, what specifically <laughs> about in, dinner bell? In, you know, ring the, you know, Burke standing up would almost be like the ringing of the dinner bell to signify. I see. <laughs> Everyone get out. Right, I see. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you, you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that by the end of his career, he was almost seen as a, almost a sort of madman. And presumably and paradoxically, that's for the very reason he's now seen as uh, the founder of conservatism, presumably because of his attack on the French Revolution and his famous pamphlet um, that I've completely forgotten the name of and gone completely blank with. Thank you, which I did know because I have taught it to students for many years, but I had one of those yeah. moments. So, so, so tell us more about that story because that, that's a surprising um, revelation for many people. The madness, the, the madness. Yeah, so, um, so this is, I guess this is, this is a bit of chapter two of the book. So part of the way in which his kind of Irishness was represented was through particular kind of um, traits and tropes that included kind of passion, wisdom, um, but his Irishness and particularly kind of, you know, people who liked to interpret how he thought and how he spoke and presented himself as kind of being distinctively kind of Celtic or Irish, depending on whether it was a specifically racial attribute or something um, more kind of historical or uh, national, um, saw in him a kind of propensity for hysteria, passionate kind of hysteria that could tip into um, madness, um, which some people then linked to a kind of foresight or prophecy um, in, in terms of later interpreters of his views on France. Um, but yeah, so, you know, increasingly he was seen as becoming obsessed with France, um, you know, as a kind of warmonger um, encouraging Pitt to, um, to, to kind of start the Revolutionary War um, and kind of increasingly producing these, you know, um, incredibly, you know, eloquent pamphlets on, you know, letters on registered peace and the, 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 the kind of tracks that are associated with his kind of opposition to the revolution beyond reflections, but were also seen to um, be the kind of you know, on the one hand, the ravings of a madman who was who had become obsessed and kind of blinded by um, his opposition to the to the revolution. 
So, so let's, let's start maybe bringing out that story. How is it that somebody whose name is now associated with the importance of tradition and moderation and the importance of an established state church and sanctity of property could write a book where he argued for those things, but it took a long time for those things to be what he's known for. Whereas in the short term, he was known for being almost a radical reactionary and, and a radical reactionary, of course, is not a conservative. Um, they are something else. Uh, so, so, so what explains um, that the, well, the shift from, from Madman to a uh, great noble founder of the, the, the great tradition of conservatism? Mm. Um, so essentially you have to forget everything that you think you know um, about Burt's canonical status, but you also have to, um, I think, forget what you think you know about conservatism and treat conservatism as something that you know, did not exist when Burke was alive. You know, there was no conception of a neat five or six point uh you know philosophy or theory of conservatism that existed and so what the project and the book kind of became was not only an interested in yeah so how did how was the transformed into the founder of modern conservatism but actually how was this kind of this modern idea of this body of conservative thought of conservatism um, constructed and, and developed. So you not only have to, not only does Burke have to go through some kind of serious reinterpretation in terms of not just his thoughts and like how that can be understood as consistent, um, but also and you know, consistent and important and representative of a body of thought that we can call conservatism, but also in terms of Burke himself had to be re-established as you know for Victorians a kind of respectable character but also as someone who could be you know could be lauded as a person as well as as, as well as a great thinker and um, so, so, so there's, a, there's, there's two parts of the story as well in that respect. So, so what was the first major uh, reinterpretation then that began this process? Um, so it takes, I mean, it takes a long time. So there's, there's kind of various, he has, he has, he always has admirers. Uh, often, you know, these are, you know, in the early 19th century, these can be pro-Catholic emancipation Tories. Irish Tories um, are particularly um, fond of Burke and kind of write some of the early um, very positive memoirs and kind of biographies and kind of accounts of Burke. People like um, George Crowley, who was an Anglican, uh, Tory and um, uh, John Wilson Croker, who was um, a, a Tory MP, was a big fan of Burke. Um, there are also people who consistently admire his constitutional writings in terms of the account that he provides of the development of the beloved British constitution um, in in England, um, but there are also kind of problems in terms of um, how that's portrayed after um, 1832 and the Reform Act as being kind of too stationary. He also had he also has admirers within the Whig Party and, as I said, kind of within the kind of Tory Party, but he's not seen as consistent. So you do have Whigs in the early 19th century who are very happy to say that 
thoughts on the present discontents is still the Whig manual, um, you know, and is still a kind of like highly foundational text for even kind of Foxite and Holland House Whigs. Um, but they still maintain the madman trope. The, you know, so for Tories, it remains kind of key to just be like, yes, well, we can forget everything before um, reflections because that was, you know, that kind of changed, changed gear. Um, and Whigs basically say, well, yes, but that, that was the period where he became a madman. So that's not, that's not the true Burke. The true Burke is the birth of the reflections of the revolution in France. What happens from the kind of 1860s is that you have a younger generation, primarily liberal men of letters. So particularly people who have had, you know, they've been to Oxford or they've been to Cambridge, they've had a, a version of a kind of crisis of faith and they've in, basically had to turn towards like the new periodical journalism in order to make their way rather than kind of uh, joining the clergy. And so they, they, they start to write for the kind of blossoming periodical culture um, that expands particularly from the 1850s. So publications like the Saturday Review, the Fortnightly Review, the Cornhill. Um, and these figures start, are not only kind of interested in contemporary ideas about history, about evolution and science and kind of de de developmental thoughts, um, but they're also steeped in 19th century Comtean positivism um, and John Stuart Mill ideas about development and from Comte a kind of interest in the French Revolution as a kind of transformative moment in, uh, in, in, in kind of intellectual history as they, as they would have, as, as they would have seen it. And this gives them an interest in Burke, which is unique because the positives, the positivists are generally not that interested in Burke. Um, but figures like John Morley, Leslie Stephen, his brother Fitzjames Stephen, and other kind of more minor figures become very interested in Burke as someone who they see as advanced liberals, someone who eventually they describe as kind of you know limited in various ways but as a kind of important figure who can be seen as broadly consistent and speak to, to then contemporary concerns about um, progress, evolution, his, the importance of kind of historical development, but also see him as standing in um, a kind of broadly English empiricist tradition. So it's often said that these thinkers interpret him as a, as a liberal utilitarian like them. And uh, I argue that this isn't true. They, they, they see in Burke someone who, they see in Burke someone who has an affinity um, with that, but they are, by the, they are no means aligning him with, with Bentham or, or Mill or themselves. They, they kind of see in him a kind of compliment and you know, someone who's connected to that tradition but, but, but does different things and has a more kind of historic conservative to them um, aspect to the way he thinks about the constitution, to the way he thinks about religion and established religion, um, but is nonetheless important, A, as a kind of historic thinker and they see him very much as a, as a thinker 
um, but also as someone who was consistent and can be seen as, you know, can be seen as someone who um, is not only relevant to contemporary thought, but has kind of helped to shape it, although in a kind of less advanced way than they would, than they would ideally like. So, so that makes a lot of sense as a period of reinterpretation and, in a way, reappropriation. But that's still, of course, a, a long way from Burke, <laughs> the founder of modern conservatism. It doesn't sound like any of these people were, were making that kind of claim. So how, how did we get from, from there to the situation uh, where we are now? So by 1880, you basically have a good body of literature, whether it's texts on Burke, whether it's uh, what we can call, you know, some of the first intellectual histories. Um, so say like Leslie Stevens' history of uh, thought in the 18th century, in which Burke forms a kind of a component of. Um, so you have individual studies of Burke, which generally take the form of biographies or studies or these kind of broader um, these kind of broader examinations of thought. And then you also have some reissues by key figures of his work. So you get some of the first selected, big selected editions with quite Im some important like interpretive introductions. Um, so you've got a good body of thought that's describing him as a consistent thinker, as an important thinker. Um, but this isn't the same thing as, um, A, as I said, this thought being kind of considered to be something that we could call conservative. They do, they do sometimes use the word conservative when they're describing you know, his historic conservatism or these kinds of things. But it's not, as you say, it's not kind of drawn out in, a, in, a, in the systematic way that it would be done later. But it's also not good enough for liberals to be calling Burke a conservative. Conservatives have to say, Burke is a conservative and we are his heirs. Um, so this happens, um, this happens primarily through, um, uh, primarily, primarily but not solely through the debates over Irish Home Rule um, from 1886. So uh, Gladstone comes out, so that there's a, there's a prehistory of using Burke to discuss Irish issues, but Home Rule kind of takes this into a kind of totally kind of new, uh, you know, a totally new like, level of uh, level of discussion um, in terms of the kind of the reach and the, the quantity um, of quotation, of discussion, of kind of disagreement over which text to use and um, what was the true book that could be used in a conversation and a debate over um, the establishment of a devolved parliament in Dublin. So Gladstone comes out, Gladstone is basically reading Burke daily in December 1885 before he comes um, out in favour of home rule. And then on the, the first day of the second reading of the bill in parliament, Gladstone says, you know, basically, I've been reading Burke to come to uh, the conclusion that you know we need to have um, home rule uh, for Ireland and he actively invites his listeners to read Burke and to use Burke in their arguments um, for home rule and he closes that speech again by referring to Burke and this instigates a kind of uh, Burkean reading revolution where opponents and supporters of, of 
Home Rule and a grassroots proposition, start going to Burke to, you know, Home Rule, the, the arguments for, for Home Rule obviously do not centre on Burke, but, you know, Burke is then used in many ways to kind of argue, A, for the Gladstonian argument in terms of, um, you know, the kind of moral and imaginative argument that, you know, we need to grant Home Rule to secure, A, civil and religious liberty for Ireland, which is the historic Whig and liberal motto, um, but also to use Burke's American writings in particular to argue for the need and importance of, of strong, you know, moral and imaginative bonds to the kind of the union of hearts and minds. So he's drawing primarily from Burke's American writings, so the speeches on conciliation and taxation on with America from the mid-1770s, um, to argue that, you know, the fundamental message from Burke on home rule um, is it's positive, would be supportive of you know constitutional reform. Um, and you know, so draws from the American writings to talk about hearts and minds, and also looks to his Irish writings on Grattan's Parliament to argue that Grattan's Parliament provides um, a convincing historical and constitutional precedent. Um, however, the liberal unionists who split from the Gladstonians over this uh, not only disagree with um, Gladstone's proposal to them kind of fundamentally um, and problematically um, break, break unitary parliamentary sovereignty at Westminster, they also disagree with um, Gladstone's reading of Burke. So really prominent intellectual liberal unionists, people like W.H. Leckie, A.B. Dicey, uh, Matthew Arnold, all of whom are kind of, you know, students of Burke um, in different ways, draw on Burke not only to argue that um, this is not civil and religious liberty for the Protestant minority um, of Ireland, but also to argue that A, Grattan's Parliament is not um, a good constitutional precedent and that using some of Burke's later writings, um, you can see how he um, expressed some of his doubts uh, on Grattan's Parliament, but also kind of fundamentally looked to reflections and the French writings to argue um, that this was constitutional revolution. And therefore, you could not, then therefore the spirit of Burke was with the people who did not want this kind of this, this fundamental constitutional revolution that this was organic reform in the sense of um, changes to the to the essential and like fundamental organs um, of the constitution rather than the way that some people use organic reform to just kind of mean like gradual development um, and more than this the liberal unionists claimed that not only were was the spirit of Burke and the kind of true principles of Burke embodied in the liberal unionists. They argued that, um, in fact, the politics of the 1790s was repeating itself in the 1880s. So the Gladstonians were effectively the Foxites in support of this radical revolutionary change, whereas the liberal unionists, like Burke, um, who had kind of um, argued for his you know, fundamental consistency 
um, in the appeal from the New Bill Wicks uh, the year after Reflections was published, that they too were maintaining, you know, what they saw as the, the, the Whig and liberal tradition of civil and religious liberty. And so that they were not only um, using the correct interpretation of Burke to support their view of home rule, but in fact, they were Burke. They were like, you know, they were the modern Burkeans. Um, and so in this context, Burke is effectively given a modern political label. He's 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 not only kind of of a relevant person, a kind of a, you know intellectual inspiration for political arguments. He actually becomes directly aligned with um, like contemporary political parties. Um, and more than this, this then suggested a you know a possible relationship with previous opponents so the conservatives and the fact that the liberal unionists are um in alliance with conservatives um from 1895 and then kind of forming uh, fusing formally uh, in 1912 as the conservative and unionist party um begins to give burke you know, a direct political um connection to and political conservatives um, and what was what I found interesting is that you know even by the 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 second the second home rule bill um, in the 1890s you have far more conservatives using Burke um, to argue against Gladstone's bill than you did have than you had in 1886. Fantastic. To, to what extent did it matter or was it used um, to various sides advantage that Burke himself was Irish? And of course, it's the Irish home rule question that's at issue. Or, or, or was it not really, was that not really the point? Um, it was, it was in the sense that he was deemed to be an authority on Ireland. So, um, as I said, he was kind of, he was used, he was used as an, as a, as an authority on Irish issues variously, including, for example, on um, the disestablishment of the Irish church, um, the debates over, over that act in the late 1860s. Um, Matthew Arnold publishes a, um, an edition of books, um, Writings on Ireland, um, in 1881, around the time of Gladstone's um, 1881 Irish Land Act, um, in order to kind of suggest that this was an incorrect reading um, of what, what Burke had said at Ireland, or what Burke had said on Ireland. Um, so it's not so much that he, it was because he was Irish, it was that that background gave him a knowledge and a, and a sense of authority on those matters. So that, that's a really helpful overview of, of your argument. If we could now maybe now turn to think more about practicing reception history generally, um, I'm not a reception historian. And one of the reasons for that is because I find it hard enough just to work with a single text um, and, and the secondary interpretations of that text and trying to work out what that text meant. And I look at the reception histories of some of the texts that I, I think about and I just 
feel completely overwhelmed the thought of even beginning to try and sift through the vast numbers of conflicting readings sometimes they're not very good readings either because just because something was historically um, put down on paper doesn't necessarily mean it was a very good for, for example philosophical interpretation which may not necessarily be the point especially if you want to know how things were read but your book in particular is, is just so impressive because you you look at not just <laughs> one thinker's reception but that reception across multiple contexts over more than a hundred years and 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 just the sheer volume of interpretations and receptions you've had to deal with so i suppose a question here would be how do you even begin <laughs> a project like this i mean i i couldn't even begin because i'd be so paralyzed by the the the, the, the size of the task that i just give up before i started so so i mean i i, I think this this book began as phd work but but even then how did you even begin such an enormous project yeah good question i remember when i i actually remember having the you know the like interviews went for like phd funding and things where you you, you know you I remember people saying, this is going to be a lot of work. Uh, and I thought, yes, I know I can do it. And I think that, and I think that having that dedicated time as a PhD student, obviously it was a, it's a lot easier than it is um, fitting it in um, currently. But I think that it's, I started with the biographies. So um, I started by looking at the kind of the major biographies that were produced on Burke in the 19th century because um, there, no official biography ever emerged. So there was supposed to be one produced by um, French Lawrence and um, someone whose name has just slipped my mind. But um, he, it never emerged, they died. Um, and so the kind of the official, the official Burke biography never, never, never materialised. And this obviously, you know, opens space for, for the kind of presentation of Burke's life. And this was done kind of primarily by um, a biography that came out in the 1820s by an Irish Tory called James Pryor. And then that went through several editions and in, like eventually in the 1850s was, in, was included in kind of, um, you know, kind of work, the works of Burke. There was then a kind of a, a big three volume um, biography that came out in the 1860s by someone who was English but went on to um, uh, be the editor of the Belfast Northern Whig newspaper and he was a big fan of um, Gladstone and then the and then the John Morley biographies um, that were kind of you know much more kind of um, conceptual and intellectual in in their presentation and so I started with them so kind of you start with the most obvious um, and you know most reviewed um discussions about Burke and then I read some of the reviews and then um then what did I do <laughs> um I think that it had to be approached thematically so fundamentally the research question was how was Burke transformed into the founder of modern conservatism and um this meant that it wasn't just about reading every single thing that people published on Burke in the 19th century and it also meant thinking about you know 
actually what is it that we're interested in are we interested in literary appreciations of people being like oh yes he was the greatest man since milton um you know which which sounds like oh wow you know that's like a but that that's actually like a literary appreciation rather than a, a rather than a political one so it's about you basically have to kind of est establish your conceptual framework for, for what it is that that you're looking for and it, it obviously took a long time for me to get to what is in the book my kind of my my four my four point framework for like what we needed to get to um in order for Burke to become you know the founder of modern conservatism um and to some extent it kind of evolved as as it as it start as it kind of went on so i started with the constitutionalism chapter so thinking about the ways in which burke was used by whigs and liberals and then tories and conservatives so looking at the kind of the you know the kind of key texts um on the constitution on kind of whig and conservative principles or on government um and then and then the Home Rule chapter, for example, came from, you know, chance reading of, you know, someone saying that Burke was really important in the Home Rule debates. And then that kind of turned into its own, its own thing. Um, and particularly the last chapter of my book, which um, is about how, so after Home Rule, um, the kind of the chapter after that talks about how um, at an intellectual level, and you have the growth of university cultures, um, at the end of the 19th century and you have people like um, you know philosophers at civic universities a young John Maynard Keynes um, you know writing you know the political philosophy of the, the political doctrines of Burke as his kind of prize prize essay of 1904 becoming kind of increasingly interesting kind of systematizing um, Burke's thought um, and then also kind of conservatives increasingly using Burke as well. But then the final chapter, which to me sort of brings it all together, was again a kind of chance reading of um, a university calendar from 1886 um, that I found on the side of um, that I found on the side of a library table from the University of Manchester. And I flicked through it and realised that it had um, all of the exams from that year as an appendix in the back so it had all of the history exams and one of the questions from 1886 was about Burke and Ireland so then so then this kind of started you know a whole kind of you know if Burke is not and this is kind of where we started if Burke is not just understood as the founder of modern conservatism in a way that's understood by academics in literary circles like whatever but also might have some kind of resonance to you know to you know um you know someone in sixth form or you know someone who reads you know who reads um you know the, you know the lrb or the new statesman or whatever or you know or the guardian or the times or whatever that you know might be someone who's referred to in um, more kind of popular publications as well like how how does that happen like that actually isn't just people writing essays on the political doctrines of Burke or um, conservatives writing books called conservatism um, there has to be like a, a broader circulation 
So um, this got me thinking, A, how was Burke taught um, in schools and in universities? Um, which was its whole kind of, it was such a fun chapter to research and it, it was, took me through like school textbooks of Burke and you know, university curricula. There was this one University of Manchester exam, history exam um, from 1910 that did 18th century history post 1715 through Burke, um, which was just, yeah, phenomenal. And also thinking about how, you know, cheap editions were increasingly produced from uh, the late 19th century so you could buy penny editions of Burke's works um, you know in the Edwardian period and thinking about how you know the texts the, the responses that students were expected to give um, to you know these exam questions um, what what was the interpretation of Burke that they were expected to provide what would get what would get them the top marks and so not only by you know 1914 had but kind of become a conservative with a big and a small c to liberals and conservatives in academia and politics but that was actually how he was being taught to students um by 19 you know you know in the Edwardian period by 1914 so yeah, did I ever think that I would end up covering such a broad range of things? Like, no, no, I didn't. Um, but, you know, I start, started with the biographies and then started to think about what it was that I wasn't looking for um, and tried to choose some kind of key themes. So, so the chapters are, so the chapters are you know, constitutionalism, Irishness, like the critical recovery, so the, the liberal men of letters, home rule, like the new conservatism and then education so kind of doing it through doing it through chronological themes um, that helped to kind of establish the story but I by no, no means had that framework when I started just started started with the biographies I suppose I've got two two questions and then maybe they have the same answer and maybe they don't which is what one what did you find the most challenging part of writing this reception history was for you and secondly what do you think the biggest challenge is or may or maybe several challenges are in writing any reception history maybe they were they're the same in your case maybe not so yeah I think that um uh I'm not sure I can remember what the biggest challenge was probably um Yeah, I'm not totally sure. I can't remember. The nice thing about the nice thing about it though was that you had you have a thread through all of these things. So in one sense, the book covers a very long period of time and kind of you know covers a, a very broad and diverse range of, of themes. So you kind of have to become an expert on lots of different types of things on education, on Irish home rule, on um, you know conversations about Irish national character and all of these kinds of things but you have you have the thread of Burke all the way through um whereas you know in kind of more recent work where you've tried to do something that's about say conservative political thought more generally you kind of lose you lose some of the kind of neatness that, that Burke is kind of a nice little guide that can take you through um and you can hang lots of these different things off. Um, so maybe the most difficult thing was um, 
find getting rid of the Burks that weren't Burke. Okay, the grave okay. robbers. So explain explain what you mean by that, because that's in, that's an intriguing idea. The Burks that weren't Burks. So t- tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So for most of the, so the sources that I used were primarily kind of published sources because it was about kind of you know it was about kind of public debate and you know um uh you know construct like kind of public and intellectual construction. Um. So. Um, so, for example, it kind of suits itself to like word searching and kind of term searching particular digitized databases like British periodicals, historical newspapers, as well as like um, um, kind of digitized kind of texts themselves. Um, but for most of the 19th century, Edmund Burke was not referred to as Edmund Burke, but as, to as Mr. Burke. Um, so, and there are obviously many Mr. Burks, uh, and then when you drop the, if you drop the title, you're then left with um, even more Burks because you have the Grave Robbers, uh, Burke and Birkenham. Um, you had the Peerage Guide, Burke's Peerage. Um, so, you know, wading through wading through the hits. Um, is probably substantial but I think you know if I always conceived I was kind of conceived of myself as a you know someone who was interested in the intellectual history of the 19th century rather than as someone who is a historian of conservatism or is a conservative you know a historian of Burke so in a sense you know you basically also have to have a very good contextual knowledge of like um which publications are significant you know if you know who, who some of these people writing are. I mean, lots of it, lots of it is anonymous for a lot of the 19th century, but you know, there are still, you still kind of get a sense of like which publications are more important than others and you know, which have different levels of readership and who that readership is and things like that. So um, yeah, you have, you have to have a good knowledge of, you have to have a, a good knowledge of the, of the time. It's not a kind of, you're not doing the intellectual context of a particular thinker or of a particular text. You're kind of embedded in, you know, the history of a longer period. Right. Perhaps maybe just to finish up, I'm wondering if you think there is any a special value in doing reception history specifically beyond the value that all history has, which is it's, mm. it's inherently valuable to know about what happened. But is there anything that you think we can particularly gain from doing reception history that, that may set it aside from other kinds of, of history? Yeah, I think that in the past, I have to say not recently, but in the past, I have come up against the, the kind of um, the view that reception history is somehow kind of derivative or yeah as you kind of say it's the opinions of like less philosophical less important uh, figures who might not be you know uh, the greatest political theorist theorists or you know um, particularly good philosophers or be or offering good interpretations of of Burke or Rousseau or or whoever but I think that um Fundamentally, the bodies of thought and ideologies, or whatever you want to call them, and the you know the the readings that we have of thinkers that you do or whoever, um, are produced in particular historical contexts and are fundamentally historically contingent. 
So conservatism didn't conservatism as we understand it didn't exist in in for most of the nineteenth century. It was it was constructed for particular reasons, um, and you know, for kind of for people with for and by people with particular intellectual interests and you know were interested in particular intellectual pursuits and political pursuits, um, and that's fundamental for understanding a kind of how political ideas and traditions and thinkers are kind of appropriated and reused by people in the past and how you know traditions and ideologies are not a historic ideas that exist in the sky that they have um they have histories um of their own and it's important that we we understand that too that you know when people talk about populism or conservatism or whatever today that you know these are these are bodies of thought and isms or whatever that are changed by human agency and i think more than that as someone who's always been interested in the history of political thought and intellectual history more broadly but has always been someone who fundamentally sees myself as a historian rather than kind of interested in like theory actually the these histories tell us a lot about um the role of uh, for want of a better phrase relatively normal people so you know people like you and me like historians commentators journalists students teachers you know who all have an active role in the construction in a complicated way, not in a simple way, in the construction of significant and long-lasting political traditions, ideologies, isms, whatever, and that actually, you know, authors and texts have, you know, a limited amount of agency over um, over how you know over how they are used. Um, but this is, but I think that you know, history of political thought or whatever isn't actually just authors and texts. It's also about understanding you know broader developments and kind of isms and ideologies and yeah i think that it's important that people have a good understanding of these as not just static things that have existed for all time but that how are the products of time place and, and people lots of people in confusing and com complicated ways um leading into there is no historical caesura just leading into you know where we are today thanks and i think that's a, a particularly salient point for us in our historical moment right now and I, I think another valuable lesson we can learn from what you said there is that that we should take our history seriously um because it might teach us something about what we think we're up to now and whether we're right about that um so yeah. emily <laughs> thanks uh thanks so much for taking the time that was that was fantastic thank you very much yeah thanks very much Paul. Bye.